what if you could grow a dress in a vat of liquid to feed this microbe, then I started to realize, okay, we are significantly reducing the amount of water required to produce this material. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Create the Future podcast, brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, celebrating engineering visionaries and inspiring creative minds. Engineering affects many aspects of our lives and today's guest applies it to not just what we wear but what our clothing is made from and even how we think about making new building materials. Suzanne Lee is a designer who, after discovering you could grow fabric from microbes, began growing materials for herself and helped change the way we think about clothing. Her 2005 book, Fashioning the Future, became a key text for designers, scientists and engineers considering the future of wearable technology. Suzanne's British but now lives in the United States. She became chief creative officer of a biomaterials startup, Modern Meadow, in New York in 2014 for five years and founded Biofabricate which brings together brands, investors and biomaterial innovators to produce more sustainable materials. As the company's vision states, built with biology, not oil. But let's get back to those fabrics made from microbes. Because first, I wanted to know exactly what kind of microbes she's talking about. Well, that's a great question. The field of biofabrication is employing all kinds of uh, living organisms. So everything from bacteria, yeast, fungi, algae, um, through to mammalian cells. And, you know, they're being used to grow ingredients or materials that otherwise we might be obtaining from an agricultural crop or, or an animal it's a whole sort of new era of fabricating with biology that doesn't require us to grow a plant in a field or to to slaughter an animal. So how do you do it then? How do you convert microbes into fabric? You've said you grow them. So do you just grow it in in a lab? I mean, do you grow it on, on some sort of framework or in a vat? There's many different approaches now, when I when I first started out, my kind of epiphany was talking to a biologist about how else we might grow fabrics. He was the first person. That was uh, Dr. David Hepworth at a company in Scotland called Cellucomp. And he said to me, well, you know, rather than grow a, a plant in a field or, or use an animal to get its skin, we could create leather-like materials, for example, using microbes that literally turn sugar into cellulose and not only produce a fiber a natural fiber but organize those fibers into a sheet material and that for me was an extraordinary moment of realization that nature you know still has so much to teach us and offer us as as I was thinking about you know rethinking materials for the fashion industry if there is a living organism that can not only synthesize a material for you, but organize that into a finished structure, 
there are huge efficiencies to be gained there. So it was a, a very sort of radical idea. But, but if we think about different ways that you can grow fabrics, you can do it, design and engineer a microbe like a yeast cell to produce, like we were doing at Modern Meadow, to produce a, a protein like collagen. So rather than getting the collagen from an animal, we, we don't need to do that. We can design and engineer that microbe to manufacture the collagen and then when the collagen is extracted, we can use material science to organize that into a, a sheet material. That's one way of using a microbe. The way I came to it was using bacterial cellulose. So that was using a bacterium to produce a cellulose material. Recently, we've heard some announcements by companies like Adidas and Hermes, who are producing products using mycelium materials, which is the root system of mushrooms. So actually, there's no one method for growing fabrics or materials using microbes. There's actually many different approaches. And that's great because, you're, like you said, you're effectively missing out a process if, if in some cases you don't need to produce the fabric and then, you know, thinking of wool or cotton or, or anything like that, and then get them into thread and then weave them and then make them into a fabric. If you've then got them ready, you know, missing out that process and going straight to fabric, there's efficiencies. But what do these fabrics feel and, and look like? Because, you know, if I think of sort of plant fabrics, I think of the coolness of cotton or, or if it's from the natural world, um, the sort of smoothness of silk. It's a really interesting one because naturally we're wanting to draw analogies with the familiar, with the materials that we're used to touching and engaging with. But these are mostly a new generation of materials that we have never felt before. So they're all very different. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned when I was talking about the different organisms that are growing these materials... The variation in organism is, is also seen in the outcome. So if we think of a mycelium leather-like material, it might be used in products where you'd use leather, like a shoe or a handbag, and it might look like leather, but actually it feels it does feel different. It feels drier, I would say. It doesn't have the same sort of floppiness of a Nappa leather, for example, but it's really sort of dense as a material. If we think of something like a spider silk, which has been grown in a bacteria, some of those fibers can feel softer than silk. So I've actually you know, felt the fibers from a company in Japan called Spiber, and their fibers feel as soft as cashmere, if not softer. So I think this is what's super exciting about the field is that these new materials and technologies are opening up new types of materials and material properties that we've actually never experienced before. And do they all tend to come in a, in a similar colour, a sort of neutral, if I think of fungi or mushrooms, I, I think of sort of cream or, or pale browns. I know you can get very colourful uh, fungi as well, but um, is, is, it, is it neutral like cotton in terms of the colours? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure anyone's asked me that before. Um, <laughs> yes, the, the the mushroom materials are indeed like the um, the palest, you know, kind of button mushroom color um, in their natural state. I think there's probably variability between different species of mycelium, but essentially they are very neutral. And the same goes for protein fibers like collagen or or silk. So they would require coloring just like natural fibers do. But where it gets interesting is where you maybe go beyond that. So for example, there's actually a company in the UK called Colorifics, and they're using bacteria to produce not only the dye, um, so rather than getting the dye from a petrochemical source, it's being produced biologically, but they're also able to use that bacteria to lock the dye onto the fabric, which would normally be an additional process requiring another chemical. So biology is actually performing a double function there. It can both produce the dye and fix the dye onto the fabric. So, you know, we're early days in that, but we are seeing various startups around the world really exploring colour um, and living colour and how that might actually be translated into the fashion system. And it feels like going back to nature as well in terms of the colour because I I sort of associate, I think because like many people over the pandemic, I've really got into wildflowers and nature and it's a reminder of all the beautiful colours that have come from plants. So it's uh, it feels like going full circle. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think the other thing that is interesting is as we are designing and engineering an organism, a microbe to produce a color for us, we have, you know, incredible ability to tune those natural colors. There's an amazing library at Harvard, which um, has examples of color throughout history. And I think they have an example of the latest genetically programmed color which doesn't exist in nature but is manufactured by a natural organism so you know I think we're we're entering a sort of new world where because we are able to design and engineer with DNA we can open up sort of or extend the palette of color and materials that we currently have access to. It sounds like it's going to be a kaleidoscopic new world as well. What what gave you the idea to grow fabrics this way? I'm assuming it came from a desire to reduce impact on the environment in terms of resources. Funnily enough, it didn't, Sue. <laughs> I mean, if we go back, my entry into this field is a long time ago. Back in 2003, the idea was very just inspirational. Just what if you could grow a dress in a vat of liquid? And that was the original provocation. I think as I started on that collaboration, you know, which was very much a sort of design science coming together for the first time, through that process, I started to realize, oh, this is all happening within one growth bath. Like once we have the nutrients set up to feed this microbe and it's producing these fibers, it's turning the fibers into a sheet material. Um, 
I found all sorts of things along the way. Like I could introduce dye into that growth bath and and it would be dye, you know, it would come out the other end and it was dyed. So then I started to realize, okay, we are significantly reducing the amount of water that is required to produce this material. We're using minimal energy. I mean, I started out having what I nicknamed my fabric farm in London, you know, all summer long, I had these growth baths outside and they required nothing more than just the sun to um, provide the energy for the heating of the baths. So yes, the learning around just how sustainable these kinds of systems could be came along just by exploring it, but it actually wasn't the original provocation. Well, it's always good to be surprised, I think. So where did your career begin was it because obviously you're now extremely knowledgeable about the biology side of of microbes and how it relates to fabrics but when you were younger what what were your main interests uh well I mean my training I went to art school I'm a fashion textile designer by education and I worked in the fashion industry for 20 years um And it was actually a research post that I was offered at Central St. Martins, which is the University of the Arts in London. That part-time research post was the beginnings, really, of me diving in. I think I'd always had an interest in technology of one form or another, but from the creative perspective. So, you know, I was interested in, you know, new machinery or equipment that would enable you to create clothing in you know new ways that was always an interest and and even science fiction so I think even though I came from a creative background I had a bent towards reading about science and technology and trying to sort of figure out how that might be applied to my own creative practice and then just through serendipitous meetings with with scientists or engineers along the way you know, I'd get inspired by the work they were doing and that led to collaborative projects. And I guess the last sort of 15 to 20 years has been me moving from the fashion world towards the world that I now exist in. I mean, you know, I I ended up joining a, a biotech company and building a design team within a biotech company. So it's been a an interesting journey and and you know I think perhaps through that I've been at the forefront of this emerging new world where design and science actually um, you know really comes together at a, at a sort of innovation interface. And you've been called part of this biofabrication revolution which is happening and more and more people are getting interested in in it. When you went to New York, I don't know whether, were you living in New York before 2014 when you joined Modern Meadow as a chief creative officer? No, I was consulting from London. So I was working with companies in America and Modern Meadow was originally a client of mine in London. And I just started going back and forth. And finally, the CEO persuaded me to to come and join the team full time. How big a change was that? Because it's almost like switching sides in a a way. (laughs) It is. It's very much. I mean, you know, that was a a major step in my career to go from being surrounded, you know, working within a fashion studio, surrounded by people whose skill sets I shared and understood to being dropped into an environment where it was literally scientists in white coats in labs 
um, and I was the one person on the team who had you know a very different background and who was having to play catch up the whole time so I was lucky because I'd spent a previous decade really being surrounded by scientists going to science conferences reading up learning about the field so I wasn't just dropped in out of the blue it was it was a gradual process for me but then you know being at an an American biotech startup you know that's a very 24-7 enterprise and you know, it was a, a very steep learning curve from there to figure out as part of a, of a founding team how we bring these two very, very different worlds together. And how did you find that? Because bioengineering, which is effectively what your, you know, your scientists are, are doing, but engineering it for, for fabrics, for fashion, did you find that you fitted in well, that you could get your points across to each person, that you, it, it, it was a good blend? It's such a good question. Yes and no, I would say. I think there are some scientists who have a proclivity towards collaboration and are very open in their thinking. And then I think there are people who are very, very focused on you know, their field and are not used to being challenged by someone outside of that, especially someone who doesn't have a PhD or any kind of science background. So inevitably, I think with any group that brings together radically disparate educational backgrounds and and levels of industrial experience, there are inevitably going to be tensions. But I think what my learning was is that, A, you need to be really patient and then It was certainly forced on me to adjust my uh, expectations around just how long things take because the fashion industry is very immediate. You know, there's no such thing really as R&D. It's very process driven and you work very, very fast and you expect to get to a result very quickly. And then you're on to the next thing. And certainly the kind of very fundamental science discovery that we were doing in the early days of Modern Meadow was the opposite of that. So I had to translate my creative process from one that normally would last perhaps a few weeks or months into many years. You know, that that requires some major adjustment in in how you, you know, you operate within a team. And what made you found biofabricate was was that spotting a sort of a networking gap effectively yeah it it was very much that even when I was still in London I was always the one designer in the room at a lot of very geeky science events and I had a hard time you know back then it was challenging to try and introduce yourself to some very eminent scientists and even you know suggest opportunities for collaboration and I felt like there was a big opportunity there if we could just bring people together in a more balanced way and so Biofabricate when I moved to New York I just decided to do a one-off or what was intended as a one-off meeting that would bring together scientists and engineers with artists and designers and some brands and investors and it was a very experimental event. You know, we curated a program that brought together all of those people. And it was an immediate success. We had hugely positive 
feedback. On that one day, back in 2014, people were saying, when's the next one? And then we realized, ah, okay, we're going to have to make this at least an annual event. So I've been running Biofabricate as a summit for the last seven years now. But after I left Modern Meadow back in 2019, that was really to kind of capitalize on the broader opportunity for the field of biofabrication. So now, because I'm not tied to one startup, we're able to work with clients across this whole field, whether that's you know, other biomaterial startups or whether it's the brands who are trying to introduce these new materials to their products, as well as people like investors and certain elements of the, the supply chain. I was going to ask you about that in terms of the applications. You, you've got your bio-couture, as, it, as it's called. You've got the fashion applications. Give me an example of where these materials can be used elsewhere that's not something we wear. Yeah, I mean, one of the companies that we've worked with most closely in the last year is uh, a company based in North Carolina called Biomason. And we are super excited about their technology. So they are growing bio-cement. And if there's one industry that needs massive uh, disruption it's the construction industry its carbon footprint is so much bigger than the fashion industry and cement alone is about eight percent of global emissions so biomason have a process which is using a naturally occurring soil microbe that binds together loose aggregate materials just like the way coral is grown in the sea except that the material that they're making is three times stronger than concrete and it's grown in ambient conditions rather than being fired and they can do it in just three days. So for us, they were uh, a fantastic company to, to work with and the field of construction, I think, is one that is very ripe for disruption. So that's one example of how a biofabricated product is able to really radically offer alternatives to an industry that desperately needs those kinds of carbon solutions. Mycelium is also a material that has played a role in construction as an insulating material. Mycelium is one of those materials that has, you know, vast, I think, applications that we're only just beginning to explore. There's a company in Italy called Mogu, who are making floor tiles and acoustic tiles out of mycelium materials. Packaging, that's a huge area. And actually, I think that's taking off really well in the UK. Um, Mycelium packaging is already being used in various consumer products now. And the great thing about that is that when you dispose of it, unlike the horrible polystyrene or styrofoams that really don't disappear at all in the natural environment. Mycelium packaging, which can have that same cushioning um, protection for a product, you can just break it up, throw it into your garden, and it will feed the soil. So these some of these materials have the potential to actually be very regenerative in, in their end of use. And does this mean you're, you're sort of you're not limited with your supply? of microbes either 
yeah, there's, there's, there's no limit to the supply of microbes. The microbes will multiply so long as they are given sufficient nutrient to multiply, yeah. And that's what's kind of incredible about it. I mean, biomason with just a tiny jar of bacteria are able to manufacture millions and millions of biocement tiles. Now, your 2005 book, Fashioning the Future, Tomorrow's Wardrobe, it's been described for scientists and engineers to glimpse that future of wearable technology. 15 years on from the publication of that book, I wondered where you thought we are now, because it can so often take so much longer to get to places in reality and the practical aspect of it compared to what's available and what you can do at the time. It's a great question, and and it's one I, I like to remind people about when they talk about material innovation or technology and fashion, because the book for me was written at least 10 years after a whole bunch of research I'd done into wearable technology specifically. And, you know, if I go back to sort of 1996, then we were talking about electronic textiles conductive fibers that were going to enable a whole new generation of clothing that would have us speaking into our cuffs or the collars of our jackets and while some of that technology was feasible what people weren't considering I think very much from the engineering side was just that just because you can do something with technology doesn't actually mean that that is going to be desirable and the big piece there was that there was very little understanding about why we wear the clothes that we do and how we wear them why we buy them and very often that is much more wrapped up in status and sex appeal than it is functionality so you should always be very cautious when people try and predict the future um and with the book you know we i certainly did the best i could by talking not just to scientists and engineers and technologists but also to people from the fashion industry from the textile industry who had a more perhaps sophisticated understanding of what customers would likely adopt. It's such an interesting topic because it has so many potential applications. When I, I'd seen that you were a launch material innovator, <laughs> seeing names like NASA and Nike and you know the US State Department attached, it reminded me of a living architect called Rachel Armstrong, <laughs> who has always been advocated that we rethink how we make spacecraft, for instance. Mm. And she's saying we should maybe make them instead of, you know, the sort of science fiction metal and steel and or whatever, you know, goes into a, a spacecraft, is that you think of living walls yeah. and living materials. And, and this could be a part of the future which sounded so amazing and different and, and far-fetched but actually it it doesn't now and particularly combining what you're thinking of and that you're the companies that you're working with and what they're thinking of because if the construction industry could be made to change then a spacecraft with living walls feels 
sounds normal. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Rachel because I know her very well. Ah, <laughs> um, it's, all a, right. it's a pretty small world. She's so interesting. Yeah, and so you're 100% right. The future, I think, of space and certainly as we start thinking about colonizing Mars is that synthetic biology is going to for sure play a major role in how we are able to you know create habitats in those in environments we're, we're certainly not going to be transferring materials from earth to other planets we're going to have to build them or create them there and that's where this whole idea of taking the tiniest amount of of a microbe to a place that can then feed on or be designed and engineered to feed on the resources that we find in that place are really what is going to enable us to to build in those environments. So one example of that is we're currently seeing the beginnings, at least, of the transition from engineering uh, microbes, you know, bacteria or yeast cells that rely on a feedstock like sugar to synthesizing a feedstock like CO2. And if you can do that, then these might be some of the inputs that we can take from other environments. So for sure, um, synthetic biology and biofabrication are going to be key processes and technologies that we employ as we think about colonizing Mars and, and, you know, traveling more in space. And finally, do you have a bio couture outfit that you wear? <laughs> I did about 10 years ago. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I moved on really from the bio couture work and that's probably a whole other hours session, Sue, as, <laughs> as to why that came about. But the ultimate point around bio couture was, you know, was to have materials that completely disappear at the end of their life. And so that's what they did. I didn't try to conserve them. You know, they were exhibited around the world, but at their end of life, they naturally biodegraded. They they literally kind of crumbled and disappeared, as I think ideally all things should. That's great. Suzanne Lee, thank you very much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Thank you so much, Sue, for the invitation. Find out more about the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering by following QE Prize on Twitter and Instagram or visit qeprize.org. Thanks for listening and join me again next time.